Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Good afternoon, everybody, and a big hello to my very special guest today, Peter Van Dessel. Peter is a very old friend of mine. He's going to hate me for saying this, but I think we've known each other for over three decades now, which speaks to our age. We've worked together a long time ago now. Pete lives in the United States, and I'm going to let him talk a little bit about himself. He's now a very successful money manager. He has his own hedge fund, and when we're talking about those kinds of businesses, one of the things I should say at the outset is that in no way do either of us, just as Jim and I, never give investment advice. We're, never, we're not allowed to, and we don't think we're qualified in lots of different ways. So that's by way of disclaimer. We will certainly not be advertising any companies that we're associated with in terms of the money management industry. But we want to talk a little bit, at least I do, about the state of that industry itself. One of the things that's always interested me about money and banking and all that stuff that occupies the business press, at least, and some of the TV channels, is that the attempts by various media companies to dramatize the world of finance have often, in nine times out of 10 cases, spectacularly failed. There have been TV series here in the UK, that I remember one in the 1980s called Capital City, that bombed. And it's only the odd one, the, the film Oliver Stone's Wall Street, There've been one or two others. Most notably, I think it was HBO and Sky over here uh, have been running five series of something called Billions. I don't know if you've ever seen it, Pete. It's a TV series with an old Etonian Englishman playing a, a hedge fund manager. Th that, if anybody's seen it, it, has all the swagger and bravado. And uh, unlike those other series I mentioned, it's been quite popular because they managed to dramatize something, essentially the old Captain Ahab story of uh, somebody chasing the whale. And it's, it's a, a story of a hedge fund manager and a state prosecutor and attorney general going at each other across five series. So it is very much a Moby Dick type story. But the actual business of money management always plays second fiddle to the drama. You can't dramatize money management. I don't know whether you'd agree with that, Pete. There's nothing intrinsically dramatic about it in the way that 
medicine is intrinsically dramatic and makes for good soap opera. But the, the pr- main protagonist, Damien Lewis, an old Etonian Englishman, plays the, the billionaire hedge fund manager in this series. And I can't imagine somebody more opposite, the epitome of somebody um, completely opposite to Mr. Peter Van Dessel, who has no swagger, no bravado, and is quite a modest hedge fund manager. So that's my introduction to you, Pete. Perhaps you'd like to say a few words uh, in response to any of that. Wow. Where to start? Um, I do remember Capital City. I thought it was dreadful. Yeah, I've been around, as you know, Chris, as you refer to, for three decades now. And when I look back on that career, I never felt that there was progress. The one thing about money management is sometimes, it, it, many times, it's very boring. It, it entails to make an investment and not a research, and then a process of relating what it is you're expressing your investment through to the other investments you may have on. And then you just step forward. So it's a series. I always felt when I look back, it's a series of steps to work to the present. Yeah. I, I, and the progress that you talk about in success, uh, I, I, I've never f- felt as if um, I was imparted with success. Um, I feel as if I've, I get to certain points and I sometimes get satisfaction out of it sometimes. And for a protracted period of time, I feel as if I was sitting on a plateau going nowhere where the mer- while the mo- world is moving ahead. And that's not a, an easy place to be. And I've had my failures, you know, and, and those failures were tough, sometimes with regard to an investment t- theme, sometimes with regard um, to a business itself. So uh, there's been progress. I do objectively, when I look back, I see progress. Um, but I, but the path, as, 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 as anything that's worth doing well, uh, is never easy. So that's how I look back on that. The money management industry is difficult to dramatise. As you say, it can often be very dull, staring at uh, little green figures jumping up and down on screens all day. But it is perhaps more important than it should be. Um, But it is certainly very important, not least because one way or another, we're all savers. Whether Whether we're saving directly for a rainy day, whether we're saving for a deposit for a house, whether where most of the savings industry still is these days, saving for our old age. Either we're doing it for ourselves and or the government does it for us. What do you think the state of our industry is in terms of performing that role of helping people, you know, in the marketing literature? We, we always say across all the firms in our industry, there's somewhere in that marketing literature says we help you achieve your goals. Do you think we do a good job of that, Pete? Generalizations are always tough to address, but I feel as I and I've written about this with to our clients um, I, and I wrote I think one of the most important notes that I've written in January of 2020 now going back a while and it was to do with this phenomenon Chris of uh, we'll say indexation or we'll say the passive investment process I'll address just one, one uh, with a couple of remarks beforehand just with regard to how important saving is I it's funny Chris we spend so much time being educated in life in our former former formative years uh, and there's two subjects that are com- that are completely ne- neglected and I feel are the most important subjects one is how to manage a relationship in life and and, and relationships and the skills that are required for that and the, so more of an emphasis on philosophy might be at a, at a, in a formative years might help a little bit um, but the other the other thing that um, is, is is how to manage our savings. How how does one look at markets and the different products out there? What are the skills required? Even the basics of understanding compounding. If we if we understood that alone, the advantages that that would create, R- rather than looking for the big kill, you know, compounded at five percent rate of return for thirty years of your career, we'd all be doing very well if we did that. I think but Einstein I mean, said compound interest was the most powerful force in the universe. He did. 
along with time was the other precious thing that he felt was 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 misunderstood anyway um do you so think going... do, do you think that the job that the industry i'm not talking about your firm or my the firms i have have been or, or still are associated with but the industry as a whole do you think that we do a better job than we did when we started in the industry do you think do you think things are improving for for the you know for the saver no no and, and and the reason why I don't think that is that the industry is set up in such a way that it, it's a remarkable it 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 it's set up to and it's, it re, rinse and repeats is all that re, repeats all the time. It tries to scale. That's its a modus operandi. And with that self-centered lens on it, the the client or the saver is is is, is secondary. Going to your point about today's markets, there is a, a very scary. And going back to my note that I wrote in January 2020, the big thing that scares the pants off me at the moment is this um, passive investing craze. And and the idea that we in some way have de-risked the principle of saving or investing by putting our money into these sort of big ETFs that reflect an index. Where, uh, and also those, index, those indexes themselves, I believe the components and the construct of are very flawed. So for example, we'll say SPY, and I'm just using that as a moniker. This is, it doesn't matter. There's a, 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 there's a range of these products out there. These components, and, and that's, by the way, is the S&P 500. It's, it's a, it's a, it's the, it reflects that uh, risk. It's the U.S. Per, equity market. Exactly. That has five stocks that now represent 25 plus percent of that index. So effectively, for every twenty, for every twenty-five cents and every dollar that you put in, you're you're making a bit of a, a, quite a concentrated bet of five stocks. And you're talking happened. about Apple and Microsoft and those sorts of oh, stocks. Absolutely, and that, to my mind, is a very biased position. And the industry itself is imposing that on the saver. The the other thing too that's happening in that dynamic, and I've seen this referred to in game theory, sort of the black marble, white marble principle. What you have here is you have a, you have a game board you have equal representation, white and black marbles. One side is represented by passive, the other one is active. So as we go from active to passive, where we wait, we're weighting all our marbles to one side of the board. But what happens when that side of the board decides to go for the exit? There's nobody on the other side. So the riposte to that, Pete, is that the reason why we're all piling into passive investments is because the active investment industry has just done such a bad job for such a long period of time. It's been all fees and no performance. That's, again, for generalizations, damage a, a decision maker. Because, again, there has been certain active managers that have done exceptionally well. Like everything else, there are different sort of... But also, it's an, that could, you could also argue that's an outcome of this process of, pass, of, of indexation. Because if you are divesting from active and going to passive, well, the money flow itself would create an outperformance to the passive. So there's, there's a lot of complexity to markets I think commentators try to oversimplify things, and I think that does nobody justice. So therefore, going back to education, that's where the saver needs to be better informed. And I'm not trying to doff my hat and look down on that. Of course not. Um, I try to talk to my, my older children about just saving and what they're saving in, and, and we, we have active discussions about that, and that's quite rewarding. But I, I don't believe a lot of young people are given those advantages. No, I think that uh, financial education, I would... 100% agree with that there's much much more of it more of it needed and I'm fascinated by your remarks on philosophy as well and and that might be something we'll go into at another time perhaps even on on another podcast I'd like to move the conversation on a little bit you're an expatriate Irishman living in 
New England, in the beautiful northeast of the United States. You've been there a little while now, but I know you come back to Ireland quite regularly. What what three bullet points stick out to you when you look from that perspective that distance gives you about modern Ireland compared to the Ireland that you grew up in? Oh, wow. Night and day. I, I, a, a bit of a vignette. I, like, I was on a beach. So we went back with my um, my younger children, went back. All right, what, the four of us, my wife and I, went back in July. So with all the, you know, the testing and the COVID-related stuff, but we, we had to go back. My parents are aging, and I have older children back in Ireland that I wanted to see. So we were back there anyway. And I was down with my sister on a beach in Malahide on one of these really scorching hot days. And I remember saying to her at the time that if I, if I had been just dropped there, you know, with no reference to, to the conditions I was going into, I would have honestly thought that I was on a beach in the Coca Cabana, or sorry, the Coca Cabana. The, <laughs> the, 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 the mix um, of different people around me was, was a sight to see. And it, it, was, it was fantastic. It was fantastic. It was, I, I could see a different, a culture that I didn't grow up with. Because um, you know Dublin, Wicklow, and Donegal very well. You know different parts of Ireland. Yes, precisely. Yeah, it was like we moved as a family. We moved from Wicklow, so Ballycast Angels was filmed there not too long after. So that literally in that church, that that beautiful area, right up to then Donegal, which was, you know, at that at that point in 1977, March 77, um, internment was just had been just imposed. Uh, body searches and we went into the to the walls of the city of Derry um, and that's where we did our shopping my mother uh, with with at that point five children was was body searched on a number of occasions by British army soldiers you'd walk down certain streets and there would be um, army personnel running door to door so moving door to door with 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 guns so you know so going from we call it Ballycus Angels to that environment was like night and day now when I go back to Derry, it's it's you know I see those walls. There's no more barbed wire on them. You walk them now. You go by St Columns Cathedral, which is the, the Anglican cathedral at the top of the town, and that's beautiful. One of the most beautiful churches in the, on the on the island of Ireland, and and just the whole history of that city is fascinating. It's just a better place. It's wonderful to see. But as far as Ireland's concerned, it's just you know yourself, Chris. You would remember it was a very agrarian. I remember the roads were so bad. It's just night and day. Okay, coming back to what I hope are our main areas of expertise and um, the main topic of conversation today, although this one has been great so far, I think. Your thoughts on the economy, the world economy and markets. I'd like to start with, you know, just, I mean, we could talk about this one all day. And Jim and I have talked about it a lot in recent months. But your perspective on something that, to me at least, seems to be getting worse rather than better and that's a, a two-pronged thing, really, that the two things are related. The supply shortages that we're seeing everywhere, and I'd be very interested in what you're seeing firsthand in the United States, not just about all the stuff that we read about in the press, you know, the, the port at Long Beach and all that kind of stuff. But what are you seeing personally, if anything? And your views on the inflation outlook? Because I suspect, as always, you've got some pretty strong ones. I do. As you remember, this time last year, uh, Chris, we had a chat together and I was referring at that time to the Richard Cantillon. So just for the listener, Richard Cantillon was this Irish man born many, what is it, 300 years ago, we'll call it, just round it. And um, it talked about what happened with the, the Mississippi scheme in France and John Law. And basically what he, what he wrote about was that 
the people that are closest to, at that point, the, the, the literally the physical printing of, of notes would benefit from that more than others. So, and I think it, well, we, we talked about it, I, I was sort of using that as a, as a sort of segue into believing at the time that inflation, and I've been writing for about a year prior to that, so we were a little bit early, but that inflation was a re- meaningful risk from a number of factors. One was on the demand side, um, I thought the money printing that was going on would, and, and therefore the Cantillon effect would, would morph from, we'll say, asset markets, buildings, you know, houses, which is, as I said, the classic first stage Cantillon effect into the broader market. I felt that that, that, that was coming. But also I could see another bizarre uh, set of circumstances whereby for 10 years and for, in certain industries, even well beyond that, there was a lack of funding capital available to what I call the bits. So I had this sort of euphemism called, you know, the bits and the bytes commodities. We had invested in the in the tech industry in a very large way. We'd all read the rewards of that, but we'd, we'd, we'd ignored a series of industries that are involved in making the things and producing the things that we need, need to live life on terra firma. And I felt as if they were underappreciated. I also felt because of lack of capital, we have, we had, created the potential of a supply squeeze. I didn't have any idea that it would be as extreme as it is now. So this then we get to the term transitory or temporary. I, I much prefer temporary because transitory, I think, is a is a word that you could misconstrue. Is transitory to do a transition or is it a temporary thing? Uh, I think it's to do a transit. I think they picked it very cleverly, the word transitory. This is what authorities now talk about inflation, because I think we're transitioning to a very different set of circumstances that we've had over the last 10 years. And those are and I can see it. So you asked about the US. So, and we're far better than the supply chain deficits that we have in Europe. I see, I see supply issues everywhere, Chris. So I went to, so they, you know, the US, they do great donuts. So there's a, there's a, there's a donut chain nearby, a local donut chain. They do fantastic. They use potato. Anyway, typical US, great sort of ingenuity in this new product. But guess what? You can't buy their donuts. They don't have canola oil. Starbucks even now, and you know these highway stopover points, because I go down to Connecticut quite a bit to meet my colleagues there. You, you stop in there. Now, if you go to, and you could get 24-7, you can get your coffee. Now, after two o'clock, Starbucks on a one shift principle, you can't get coffee because you don't have staff. That, that's just two sort of signs of it. But there's just, you know, most cafes now are gone to one shift. Restaurants have gone to one shift. They don't take bookings anymore. So you can't book a restaurant anymore. It's just call up because they've realized that people now to have this experience, they'll book a month and a half or two or three in advance so they can book their weekend, but sometimes they don't turn up. So now it's just, and there's queues outside restaurants in local Porter. We've got some very good seafood restaurants here and there would be a a line outside these restaurants, you know, at five o'clock in the afternoon. We're hearing a lot about something called the Great Resignation, which is despite the fact that U.S. unemployment seems to have gone back to its near something to its lows, the economy is still short between five and seven million workers compared to the levels of employment pre-pandemic, and that these workers just seem to have disappeared or less less dramatically resigned, that they, they were doing jobs that they now, for some one reason or another, decided they, they just don't want to do. And explanations range from the economic to the sociological. The economic rationale has been that they've been getting lots of unemployment assistance from the government, so they didn't need to go to work. As that unemployment assistance has started to run off now, they're still not appearing. 
at those restaurants and other sources of employment. So now the theory has turned to being slightly more sociological in the sense that these were jobs that they didn't really want to do in the first place because they weren't nice jobs or if they weren't or if they were nice jobs, they weren't well paid jobs or for one reason or another to do with either pay or the quality of the work or both. People have just decided that life is too short and now I'm going to do something else. Do you see a lot of that around the place? Yeah, it's a, it's a very complex one. I do think that employment conditions in this country, I, I think there's a, I will say one thing. I, there's this being reverence to the flexibility of the labor market in the US, and there has been for many, many years now, um, that post, you know, 1970s, the coming on of, you know, um, Reagan's Good Morning America, this neoliberal sort of trend that's taken place that um, this country has produced this remarkable productivity. And that's true to a degree. But the flip side to that from a different perspective, a Howard Zen perspective, um, you'd see that what happened really was that labor rights just collapsed. The pressure valve when the economy would vacillate, you know, go hot, go cold, the labor within that economic framework was the was the pressure valve so if there was if there was excess supply what did they do they let labor go and you can do it very easily here except i believe that covid they went one step too far so i'm hearing i'm hearing everything from amazon to these big firms i, I shouldn't mention names but i'm just using that as a, an example but from these big will say considered to be better employers right down to local levels and they can't get staff because i think basically people have just lost trust in employers how can you set out a life to take down a mortgage for 25 30 years give yourself over to receiving one check on a monthly basis and yet have no real security about uh, the continuity of that check and I think people have got fed up with that. I think I think that's a, that's one underlying current current. There's, there's, there are many others, but that's a big one. One of the things that I'm seeing start to appear in my inbox is a reinterpretation of economic history of the last thirty or forty years, going all the way back to Paul Volcker. For younger listeners, Paul Volcker was the chairman of the Federal Reserve in the early 1980s that crushed the 1970s inflation. The 1970s inflation, or indeed stagflation, that we see terms like that chucked around all the time and questions being asked about whether or not we're going back to the 1970s. Whatever the 1970s were, it was crushed by Paul Volcker's monetary policy, interest rate policy at the beginning of the 1980s. And there were a couple of pretty nasty recessions caused by interest rates that I won't mention the levels to which they reached because it would scare anybody with a mortgage would be absolutely terrified by what it happened to interest rates back then. The reinterpretation of history since then, is, it, it, which is appearing in some corners, it's not mainstream yet, it's quite interesting. One of the first things that I've seen, which I think will be worth, and I'm only going to mention this, I'm not even going to ask you about it, Pete, but maybe I'll talk to you about it again, is that Volcker is now being seen as the man that uh, deindustrialized the West with that interest rate policy, that the, the smokestack industry declined, the cars the shipbuilding, the mines, the all, all the heavy industry that America and bits of Europe were, the, the economies were dominated by those industries. Those industries were crushed by those by those interest rate policies, and that was the beginning of the great migration of those industries to places like China, which coincidentally in 1978 under Deng Xiaoping 
had begun its modernization of his economy. And these industries were, were handed over in part by the monetary policy of the time. And I've never seen that thesis explored anywhere until relatively recently. But what the other thing that happened, which is perhaps a wee bit more relevant, is it began what came to be known as the great moderation and the triumph of central banking, that central banks have uh, been given all of the credit for the fact that inflation did come down over the next couple of decades and that we, until relatively recently, inflation has not been something that you and I have been prompted to discuss at all. Interest rates fell um, from for years. They've been coming down both, you know, for bond markets and for our mortgage rates and for our deposit rates. They've all been steadily getting down all the way to zero recently. And, and, and central banks have taken the credit for the fact that economic volatility along the way subsided. There have been some bumps along the road, the great financial crisis being the biggest one of all. But the volatility of economic activity, the, the peaks and troughs of the business cycle have, over the last 30 years, been much more attenuated. It's been much less of a bumpy ride than the previous 30 years or indeed 130 years. And central banks have taken all of the credit. The bit of history that I see being rewritten quietly by some people, which I find quite interesting and I find quite compelling, is in fact that they just got lucky and that it was the emasculation of the trade unions. It was the fact that the, all of these heavy industry jobs were going for one reason or another to China. And it was the rise of China. If you drop two billion workers, China and the greater Southeastern Asian area, two billion workers were dropped into the economy almost the world economy, almost overnight, willing to work for 50 cents an hour, of course you're going to get disinflation. So the central bankers have taken all of the credit, but really it was other forces totally outside their control that have led to the great moderation. And the, that's just interesting, I think, from a historical perspective. But, and I'd really be interested to know whether you think that there's anything to that or not, whether, as usual, I'm just barking up the wrong tree. But what it suggests to me is that if you have a thesis, well, okay, this inflation problem that we've got globally now here in the UK, Ireland and the United States has been caused by these supply shortages and all these other things that we know about. And all it's going to take is a few taps on the monetary brake, a few rises in interest rates, and it will be sorted out. That's not going to happen. I think that we could be astonished by how much, in fact, the central bankers didn't have control of the, of the cycle in the past and therefore how much control they're not going to have going forward, and that this thing could take to take a direction that we least expect. It's funny, I was smiling as you were making those points, because in so many ways, I agree with you, but I'm going to come at it from a different angle. So first of all, Paul Walter, he, he, he wrote his memoirs before he passed there, which I had the great pleasure of reading. I also had the great good fortune to have met Paul Walker at a, at a, at a gathering about what now is five years ago in new york and i can i can tell you that he was a he was a, he was a public servant in 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 everything in his dna i do think he had a job to do in the 1970s right or wrong but he saw it as his job and he went he went at it in, in the manner that he would only do which is just objective and then but i i can assure you uh, the paul volker that i got an understanding of in that book would would not would not be happy with the current circumstances we're in now. And also the monetary policy tools and the, and the people that are expressing those, uh, those, um, 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 those levers now within the Fed, I just said they're just a very different set of characters. Anyway, aside from, aside from that, I think you're right, Chris. I think, I think in essence, what we have lived through has been abnormal 
the sort of 30 years of our career with falling interest rates was circumstantial. I think it was as a result of luck. And, and I put it this way. I think you know, Deng Xiaoping, you mentioned that in the late 70s, his coming online, but really his policies only started to affect us all in the late 80s. And that, and then what happened was not so much driven by Volcker, I think, but driven by, you know, corporate capitalist sort of decision making. This country and many others outsourced their industrial base to China. And they did so because they were arbitraging labor rates to produce things easier. And then we That's my point about, you know, a billion workers at 50 cents an hour. Off you go. Yeah. And, and, and then on top of that, we have Eastern Europe. They came online in 1989. So we had this massive influx of labor. And, and a very a, a book at the time, Chris, that was written by a guy called Jimmy Goldsmith. You remember Sir James Goldsmith? He wrote a, a Q&A, which he went on sort of lecturing tours around the U.S. with called The Trap. And in that, he profiled the error of, of that time, whether it, be, it was NAFTA, which was another expression of this outsourcing into Mexico and Canada. And he said, listen, he said, I'm, I'm an industrialist. I make things and I try to sell things at a slightly higher price and therefore I make money. But I said, I can tell you, and he said at the time, he, I, he was screaming more or less that this, what's going on, the outsourcing of this industrial base to like China or India or wherever it was, was an error. And he, he wasn't an anti, he was a, he was a globalist. He believed in, in global competition, but he said on fair terms. And that was the error that they made. He, he what his, what he believed in was that the, the Chinese conglomerates or corporates that wanted to export to the US, that's fine, do so. But build your stuff in the US, which is a different. It's a it's an important tweak. tweak. I um, think I that, that the other thing that that is is much neglected by academics and commentators, um, and this is kind of understandable if you've never actually worked in in some of these industries, and, and it's true actually of the financial services industry, the one that we work in. And again, this is not about the particular firms that we work in at the moment, but the um, or associated with at the moment, but the industry as a whole and lots of other industries that I have studied. The thing that I would say is one of the reasons why we have these supply shortages, and it is a complex story, as you say, there are lots of reasons why that why there are supply shortages. And these in these reasons can vary from sector to sector, product to product. They don't necessarily all have a common driver. But if there is one thing that is common across a whole range of industries, is the degree of fragility that has been put into these industries by the relentless short-term cost-cutting nature of modern corporate management. And cost-cutting is one of those things, it's a bit like, you know, medicine or a glass of wine, is that a little bit can do you a lot of good and a lot will kill you. Because cost-cutting that I've experienced throughout my career when I've seen careers of successful executives built solely on cost-cutting, not on growing the business, but on First of all, cutting the fat, which is the little bit of the, the, the thing that does you some good, because obviously if there is any organizational fat excess, it always needs trimming for, for good efficiency reasons. But then when you start getting into the old cliches of cutting into muscle and bone, then you're in trouble. And I think a lawful lot of our industries around the place, where they are run by executives who have built careers on cost cutting, and have rendered these business in, businesses incredibly fragile to the merest of shocks. You can sail a, you know, a crappy sailboat with a flimsy sail on flat seas and get away with it. But the moment the wind starts to blow or the sea starts to roll, you're in trouble if you don't have better canvas and better equipment. 
And many of the industries across a whole range of sectors just don't have any resilience built into them whatsoever for the slightest of shocks. And I think that's one of the things that's not reported enough and it's a hobby horse of mine. But I do think that we have built incredibly fragile systems. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And and then on top of that, what I think is a logical sort of broadening out of that and, and a, a more of a future look. So we understand what if, if we're right about the past and who knows, but say we are, and then and we had this tailwind of of we'll say deflationary elements led by a labor market that was underpriced relative to the labor market that we have here domestically. Things have changed now. 30 years they've been earning more. And now that very same deflationary wind, I think, has turned completely 180. Because now those people, humans, that have the same, that aspire to the same living conditions as us, are looking to buy the same things as us. And now we're, not only um, are we now importing what they make, but they're now trying, consuming what they also make. And we have, I believe, we're going to be at the, at the, at the end of the line for that, for, for those goods. And that's already happening. So we're going to, we're seeing it in the chip industry and therefore at car manufacturing, we're going to see it. And, it, you know, and then, you know, for example, at the moment now, we're talking about Christmas and what's going to happen for gifts. Well, you know, bulky plastic, bulky stuff, low margin, bulky stuff. Funny enough, it's, that's, I think they're going to be in short supply. So we, so again, over here, we, we have younger, two younger daughters, we love, they love getting on the water. They have these little paddle boards, um, not paddle boards, but little canoes or kayaks. Try getting one of those now because they're bulky, they're plastic, they're 50 bucks or whatever with the paddle. You can't get them. It's not even, it's, it's, we talk about price inflation, but there's a misunderstanding. And we'd remember this, Chris, being from the 70s, you know, understanding the 70s in our, in, in, when we were young, that sometimes there's just something isn't there. It's not a case of what will you pay for it? It's just not there. All of this is, I, I'm taking from what you're saying, you think that the word temporary or transitory, whichever word you do wish to use, it's it's going to be a lot longer than people currently think and that um, this is going to be a big problem and that we could be talking about this again this time next year. So if you take a look at the 1970s inflation, there's three cycles, there's three waves. So, you know, the, the, the denominator against the numerator, you know, that math sort of equation, it, because you're, you're talking about a compounding rate of inflation, it doesn't go in a sort of a, a, a sort of from left to right in diagonal fashion. It, it vacillates and moves. So I think you're going to have cycles. But the secular shift, I think, is is writ large. It's there. I think we haven't got enough capacity to supply our needs. More importantly, we don't have security supply and we're competing with the very same people that are, are are producing the goods that we want so i just think we're going to see a lot less choice in markets uh, in supermarkets true to to whatever we buy online just less choice and then where something becomes popular we're going to see and is available we're just going to see high prices for it and then for the necessities of life the basic goods and services, such as food, shelter, or whatever, perhaps maybe less so shelter, but certainly food, I think we're going to be paying more for. And we're already mm. seeing to that. We are. As always, Pete, we seem to agree on more than we, we disagree. I think that we're going to leave a lot of subject matter on the table because we're running up against our, our self-imposed time constraints. So I might ask you if you we could reprise some of this and pick some of those things that we've left up on the table uh, uh, on another occasion, perhaps quite soon. 
I'd be delighted to, Chris. It was a great chat. Peter, thank you very, very much for today. It is much appreciated and all the best to you. Same to you, Chris. Keep well. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and other good podcast platforms.